Well, I'm going to start out this morning uh, by making a little confession to you all, and, and I'm going to ask you not to judge me too harshly for what I'm about to tell you. Um, I'm, I'm new to this whole fatherhood thing, so you, you got to cut me some slack. Um, I, I, I did relatively well in, in school growing up and at A&M and in seminary. I, I was a, a reasonably smart guy, but sometimes I, I miss the most obvious things. So Friday night, we went over to the Morton's house, Matt and Shannon Morton, good friends of ours to play board games. Very delightful evening, very fun. Everything was going well till, till the end. We're getting ready to go. On the way out of the house, I asked Matt, hey, Matt, what are you doing tomorrow? That was Saturday. And he said, well, you know, I'm taking the girls out and we're going to get Mother's Day presents for Shannon and get ready to cook her food on, on Sunday morning. Took a moment for this to, to register with me. And when it did, my eyes got big and I thought to myself, oh, no. You see, I, I had already prepared for Mother's Day for my mom. We, we invited her in town. We got ready to cook a meal for her. We got her a present. I, I, I thought of that, but I didn't think about Julie. Because Julie's not my mom. She's my wife. So it never registered to me that, that, well, my kids can't hop in the car and go get her a card. And they can't go buy something from the store. And they can't cook breakfast on Sunday morning. It never occurred to me until that moment that until my kids grow up, I'm responsible for Mother's Day in my own house. Now, some of you right now are wondering, why in the world do we pay this guy to be our pastor <laughs> when he's this dense? Um, the, the story ends well. Fortunately, by God's grace, we were at the Mortons on Friday night. Instead of seeing Matt on Monday morning like I normally would at work, I had an opportunity to rectify the situation. Julie's not angry with me. Everything's okay in the Jennings household this morning. Um, but since Friday night, I've, I've had some chance to kind of think through this and wonder how in the world did I miss the reality that I need to take care of Mother's Day? How did I almost commit this disastrous mistake? And I realized, well, the reason is, is because we knew fathers don't take some class on fatherhood. We, we don't get trained on, on how to be a dad. Now, my dad did a great job of modeling fatherhood to me, but that was many years ago, and I'm very forgetful, so I've forgotten a lot of the details. And, and when I was becoming a father, when I knew I was going to be a father, I, I read a lot of books, and they trained me in things like how to change diapers and how to safety-proof your house. But there were no books and there were no classes on the really important things like you're responsible for Mother's Day till your kids grow up. Um, I think that points out kind of a deficiency in life for all of us. When it comes down to really the most important things in life, like how to be a good husband and wife, how to be a good mother and father, how to, how to pray, how to fight temptation, how to walk with the Lord, when, the, when it comes to the really important things in life, we don't have any formal education for them, do we? We don't take classes on any of that stuff. I told you a number of weeks ago, I went to seminary for four years, never took a class on something as important as how to pray. There's no class on that. I've read lots of books, but none of them really teach me about these most important things, how to be a father, how to be a dad, how to pray, how to walk with the Lord, how to fight temptation. In 12 years or 16 years or 20 years of formal education, none of us took classes on the most important things in life. The classes that we took never dealt with that stuff. And really, it's, it's not the fault of educators. There's really no way that you can teach that stuff through a book or through a class. Sure, you can take a book, you can take a class on organic chemistry, but not on how to be a good dad. Now, now Jesus understood that. He understood that you couldn't pass on the most important things through a, a class or a lecture or a book. He's the greatest teacher who's ever lived, and yet he knew better than anyone the limits of a lecture. And so in the course of Jesus' ministry, he unveils to us 
a better way. He unveils to us a way in which we can train one another in the most important things of life, the things that really matter. And I want to share that with you this morning. I want to share this this method of training that Jesus gives to us in the second half of the book of Matthew. We're going to jump back into the book of Matthew. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 12. I want to set the stage and help you to see this, this method that Jesus gives to us of how we train one another and develop in the most important things in life. Okay, so just to review for you, the first half of the book of Matthew we looked at last week, Matthew's chapter, chapters 1 through 11, and in those chapters, Jesus is revealed to us as king, as the promised Davidic king who would restore the Davidic kingdom to the nation of Israel. That's chapters 1 through 11. At the very end of that section, verses 28 through 30, Jesus finally offers the Davidic kingdom to Israel. In no uncertain terms, he says, I am your king, submit to my yoke. I will give you rest. I will fulfill the covenants for you. That's the end of Matthew 11. It's kind of the apex of the book. He offers himself as king, but then we studied Matthew chapter 12 last week where the nation as a whole, led by their religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they choose to reject their king. That's what we looked at last week, the whole unpardonable sin thing. They, they reject the offer of the king. And as a consequence, as a result, Jesus changes the direction of his ministry. Things head in a different direction after the middle point in the book of Matthew. And I want to start looking at that now. Um, once the nation rejects their king, Jesus first presents to them a new goal. Originally, Jesus was headed to the throne. He shows up on earth, headed to the throne to be their king, but he heads in a new direction after their rejection. We read this verse last week, chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's the first time that Jesus publicly talks about his impending death and resurrection in the book of Matthew. He'd never mentioned it publicly before. He had always talked about heading to the throne. He was going to be king, but the nation rejected him. Now he heads in a different direction. His goal is the cross. He is headed to the cross and to the resurrection. Okay, so he's, he presents a new goal. He also presents a new form of the kingdom. In the first half of the book of Matthew, Jesus is preparing the nation to receive the Davidic kingdom. What do we know about the Davidic kingdom? Well, it's a, it's a geopolitical kingdom on earth. It's a nation. It grows through political and military means. When the Davidic kingdom comes to earth, which it will in the future, it will be a nation that rules over the whole earth. It's a geopolitical kingdom. But the nation rejected him, and as a result, Jesus presents a new form of the kingdom. Look with me in chapter 13. He's going to do something new. He's not going to bring at this time a geopolitical nation to earth. He's going to do something different. Look in verse 31 of chapter 13. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now you read those verses and you think, what in the world is that about? What is Jesus saying in this parable? Well, Jesus is actually saying something remarkable, something surprising. They're expecting the Davidic kingdom. When the Davidic kingdom bursts on the scene, it will not be like a mustard seed. Mustard seed's tiny. You can barely see it. When the Davidic kingdom comes, when Christ returns, everyone will see it. The Davidic kingdom is flashy. It is big. It is huge. When Jesus shows up as king, the whole world knows. But that's not what Jesus is doing right now. What Jesus is doing is not big. It is not flashy. What is Jesus doing? 
He's growing a kingdom, a new type of kingdom that starts very small. We call it the church. The church started remarkably small. Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and at the beginning of the book of Acts, when we encounter the beginning of the church, it's like 500 people. That's tiny. That's nothing compared to the whole world. It starts tiny, but it gradually grows like a tree growing. It spreads to cover the entire world. That's the new form of the kingdom that Jesus reveals. Not something big, not something flashly, but something that grows slowly to encompass the whole world. That's the church. So Jesus reveals a new form of the kingdom. He also begins to practice a new method of ministry. The second half of the book of Matthew looks very different than the first half. What Jesus is doing in the second half of the book of Matthew is very different than what he did in the first half. Look with me in chapter 13, verse 11. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, to the crowds, it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand." Jesus is is telling his disciples, I'm going to start doing something new in my ministry. Before Matthew chapter 12, Jesus spoke to the crowds clearly. His ministry was directed to the masses. He spent most of his time speaking to the crowds in clear language. But that changes. When the nation rejects him, Jesus begins to speak in parables. Parables are these little stories, like the mustard seed, that communicate something profound, but they can be confusing. They can be hard to understand. The reason that Jesus begins to teach in parables is twofold. First part of this reason, as Jesus speaks in parables, the first reason for it is to drive the crowds away. That sounds weird. That sounds counterintuitive. If you're Jesus, don't you want the crowds to come? Well, not after they've rejected him. After the crowds have made their decision, the nation has made their decision to reject him, Jesus speaks in parables because they're confusing. And the crowds begin to wean out. The crowds begin to get smaller and smaller. Why? Because they don't understand what's going on. This guy seems crazy to them. Parables push the crowds away. They've rejected him, so Jesus pushes them away. But the parables have a second purpose. Parables are actually incredibly profound teaching tools if you'll do what? If you will come ask Jesus what he means. And that's what the disciples do. The disciples over and over again will hear a parable and they'll think, what in the world? So they'll walk up to Jesus and they'll say, please, Lord, teach us what this means. And he will. Jesus begins to teach the meaning of the parables, but only to the disciples, only those who draw near. So while parables push the crowds away, they draw the disciples, his followers, closer and closer to him. And that's the second half of the book of Matthew. Jesus' teaching ministry is completely different. He's not speaking clearly to huge crowds of thousands. He's instead speaking in parables, which push the crowds away. And he's speaking clearly only to the disciples, only to this small group that draws near and submits to him. Parables drive the crowds away, but they prepare the disciples for his coming departure. That's what the second half of the book of Matthew is about. Now it's interesting to look at the focus of Jesus. In in the first half of Matthew, most of his time is directed towards the crowds. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people. In the second half, most of his time is directed towards whom? Very small groups, just the disciples, just the 500. Among the 500, there were 70 who followed him around. He spent most of his time there. And among the 70, he actually spent most of his time just with 12 of them, the actual disciples with a capital D. And, and of those 12, he really spent most of his time just with three, just with Peter, John, and James. Most of Jesus' ministry in the second half of Matthew is only to a very small number of people. He's focused just on the disciples. 
So his ministry takes a very different direction in the second half of the book of Matthew. And then it culminates with a new command. Last chapter in the book of Matthew is very important. Matthew 28, it would be all bad news if you didn't have the last chapter. Jesus rises from the dead. The king is vindicated. He is proven by the resurrection to be king. And after his resurrection, Jesus gives a new command, a very different command than the disciples have ever heard. So turn to Matthew 28. It's a passage that you've heard before, but we want to focus on it this morning. This new way of training people, of helping people to grow. Look, in, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You've heard this passage a lot. You probably haven't considered how radical it is, how surprising it is. Again, they were expecting a kingdom to show up that would grow politically. Let's build an army and extend the kingdom of God throughout the planet. That's what was going on in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, nope. That's not what I'm about. What I want you to do is make disciples of all nations. This is a very new command. But it's not new to us. We've heard it a lot. So what I want to do this morning is I want to really look at this in detail. I want to study some of these key words. And and I'll, I'll confess to you, I've studied this passage before, but this week was really the first time that I really went deep in a word study of that word disciple that I really studied it in depth, and I'm really excited about some of the things that I've learned about this word. It's kind of opened my eyes to see this passage differently than I used to see it. So I want to share that with you this morning and help you to understand this command from Jesus, this new type of ministry that he's unveiling. How do we help people grow in the most important things of life? How to be a good dad, how to be a good mom, how to be a good husband, a good wife, how to pray, how to walk with the Lord, how to fight temptation. Well, we grow them by making disciples. That's Jesus' new method of growth that he wants to unveil to us. So let's talk about it. I'm just going to try to answer a number of questions as I walk you guys through this. Uh, First, let's look at the word. What does it mean to be a disciple? What is a disciple? Well, it's significant that Jesus chose that word. He could have chosen the word believer, make believers of all nations. He could have chosen the word convert, make converts of all nations. But he chose a different word. A disciple is not equal to a believer or a convert. A a disciple is a believer. You you have to believe first before you can become a disciple. But a disciple is something more than simply someone who has believed. Disciple communicates more than just belief. So I I studied this word. It's actually interesting. The word was common back in Jesus' day. Common, common Greek word. It's the Greek word methetes. It was used in many many different contexts in Jesus' day. Here's just the secular usage. When when you heard this word and you were among Jesus' audience and it wasn't Jesus speaking, here's what you thought. A disciple, a man is called a disciple when he binds himself to someone else in order to acquire his practical and theoretical knowledge. He may be an apprentice in a trade, a student of medicine, or a member of a philosophical school. One can only be a disciple in the company of a master or a teacher. So he's used in in many relationships where someone is growing, they're being trained as an apprentice. But when it's used in scripture, it means something a little bit more. When you look at this word methetes in scripture, especially in the New Testament, to be a disciple of someone means that you choose to follow that person and give that person your exclusive allegiance. That's what disciples really getting at. You have chosen to give that master, that teacher, your exclusive allegiance. Becoming a disciple is a commitment of your whole self to another person as your master and as your teacher. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. Make disciples, make these people who who don't just believe in me, but they wholly commit their lives to me, to follow me. They give me their exclusive allegiance. 
Now, it's interesting, when Jesus gives this command, he says, make disciples, he doesn't mention of whom. He doesn't say make disciples of and gives the name of a person. But clearly in the passage, we're talking about disciples of Jesus. That's, that's significant. I was looking at scripture, and in the Old Testament, in the beginning of the Gospels, you have lots of different discipleship relationships mentioned. You have disciples of Moses, you have disciples of John the Baptist, you have disciples of the Pharisees. In each case, these are people who have given their whole allegiance to Moses, or to the Pharisees, or to John the Baptist. You have all these relationships, but then Jesus shows up. And it's interesting, after Jesus shows up, you never have anyone else mentioned as master or teacher. Nowhere in the rest of the New Testament is Paul ever called master. There are no disciples of Paul. There are no disciples of Peter. There are no disciples of John. Once Jesus shows up, that's it. There's nobody better than him. He is the master. He is the one teacher to whom we are all disciples. That was really eye-opening to me. I hear people think about or talk about the discipleship relationship as if they're raising up disciples of theirs. Here are my disciples. I'm training them up. Well, that's actually not biblically accurate. We're not training up disciples of us. There is no one who is qualified to be master or teacher other than Jesus So, for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul will challenge the Corinthians, imitate me. But then immediately afterwards, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Raising up disciples, whether it's Peter, John, and James, or whether it's us doing it, we're always raising up disciples of Jesus. He is the one and only master, the one and only teacher. We are just fellow disciples helping others on the road. Okay, so Jesus challenges his disciples, raise up other disciples of me. Now let's go ahead and, and, and summarize this. What exactly is he saying in Matthew 28? Jesus is challenging them to raise up men and women from every nation who will choose to follow Jesus and give him their exclusive allegiance as master and teacher. That's what Jesus wants. That's what he wants us to do is raise up men and women from every nation who follow him and give him their exclusive allegiance. Notice that that includes belief. You, you can't be a disciple of Jesus if you don't believe in Jesus, but it goes beyond belief. We're not just helping people believe the gospel, we're training them and challenging them and encouraging them and equipping them to completely follow Jesus and give him their exclusive allegiance. So that's what the word means. Let's, let's move on to a second question. How do we actually do it? What are the steps involved in making disciples? What does this look like? Well, there's, there's three steps in this passage. The first one is implied. The second two are implicit. The first step that's implied is if we're going to make disciples, we have to become a disciple ourselves first. Uh, if you look at Matthew 28 again, look in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. The, the audience here are disciples. Jesus is not speaking this command to the crowds. He's speaking to those who are already his disciples. Now, it's 11 because Judas is already out of the way. These are the 11 faithful disciples. They're the audience. Jesus is telling us you can't make a disciple of Jesus until you are a disciple yourself. So how do we become disciples of Jesus? Well, a number of things here. Obviously, first, it begins with belief. Begins with belief. The first step in becoming a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, is to believe the good news, what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Discipleship begins by sharing the gospel and believing it. If you're here this morning and, you've, and you, you wonder what is the gospel, what is this that Blake is talking about, uh, the gospel is very simple but very, very significant. It, it says that we can't earn our way to God. We can't fix the problem of separation of sin that we have in our lives. We can't earn our way to God, but God took care of that problem by sending his son Jesus 
to die for our sins on the cross and then rise from the dead. And now Jesus offers to every person on the planet the free gift of eternal life, a relationship with him in this life and the next if we will simply receive it in faith. That's the gospel. Just receiving in faith the gift of eternal life from Jesus who died for you and rose from the dead. That's where discipleship starts, believing that truth, that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. If, that's, if that information is new to you this morning or if you still struggle with it, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. None of the rest of this message applies to you yet until you take that first step of trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Now, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we have believed that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. Uh, That is extremely important. We now have eternal life that we can never lose. We have a relationship with God in this life and the next. But faith alone is not enough to be a disciple. A disciple goes beyond faith. Discipleship requires not just faith in Jesus, not just belief in Jesus, but also commitment to follow and obey Jesus. Remember the definition we just studied. The disciple is one who has given their entire allegiance to the master, who follows the master, who obeys the master. Yeah, I, I hope it's, it's, it's becoming obvious. Belief or becoming a believer is distinct from becoming a disciple. It is possible to be a believer, to have eternal life, and yet not be a disciple. You can trust in Jesus and be saved, have eternal life, go to heaven, and yet not choose to become his disciple, to swear your allegiance to him, to follow him. It's possible, but it's neither normal nor comfortable. If a person chooses to be a believer, to believe in Jesus for salvation, but then chooses not to be a disciple, not to follow Jesus, they are in sin. And as we talked about last week, sin always carries negative consequences. Choosing to be a believer but not a disciple will bring pain and suffering into your life. It will bring loss. You will not experience the joy and peace that Jesus wants for you in this life. And in the next life, when you meet your master, when you meet your teacher, instead of Jesus giving you honor and reward, you will feel ashamed. Because you did not walk with him as a disciple. Okay, so becoming a believer is distinct from becoming a disciple. Disciple requires not only faith, but also commitment and obedience. But this step of becoming a disciple, it is what Jesus expects of all of us. That's why he used the word disciple in Matthew 28. It's not enough to just become a convert or a believer. That's only the first step. He wants all of us to move forward and commit ourselves to follow him as his disciples. So if you're here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, but you aren't yet walking as his disciple, that's the next step for you. Jesus is calling you this morning to commit your life to him as master and teacher. If you haven't done that yet, if you're, if you're living for yourself, if you're your own master, if you're following your own will, uh, if you're living in sin and not willing to turn from that, you still go to heaven because getting to heaven is not about what you do, but you are going to live a life of pain and suffering, devoid of joy and peace and reward. Please, this is the day to turn from that direction and commit yourself to be a disciple of Jesus, to give your allegiance to him and follow him. That's what Jesus wants of you. That's what Jesus expects of you. Now, let me clarify this. That's not necessarily a one-time decision. If you're anything like me, it's, it's easy to, to wiggle out of commitments over time. So discipleship is something that we commit to over and over again in the course of our life. Really, as often as we sin, as often as we go on our own path, it's time to recommit ourselves to following Jesus, to being his disciple, to giving our allegiance to him. 
So this morning, the rest of this message is not going to apply to you if you have not first trusted in Jesus as your Savior and second, committed yourself to follow him as your master and as your teacher. Until you take those two steps, you cannot participate in Matthew 28 because you're not yet his disciple. So let me challenge you, if there's anything holding you back on either of those steps, whether trusting in Jesus or or this idea of committing to him, if there's some sin that you feel like you can't turn away from, if it seems too hard to follow Jesus, to let him be your master, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. That is essential. That's the most important stuff you do in life. You can't get to any of the rest of this message until you do those things. Okay, now, now assuming that you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior and you have committed yourself to him, you've given him your allegiance, how now do you participate in Matthew 28? How do you make disciples? Well, step number two, this is where it gets explicit. Jesus' next step, what he says first explicitly, is make, uh, is make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when you look at this command, baptize them, um, what Jesus is really getting at, he, he's not getting at just baptism. Baptism isn't really the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is not going to be happy if we just run all over the world and grab people and dunk them in water. That's, that's not really what he's looking for. That's just going to create a lot of ticked off people that are really confused. Baptism is really not what this is about. Baptism in scripture is the conclusion. It's the seal of the process of evangelism. That's what Jesus is really getting at. This, this uh, second command, second part of making disciples is sharing your faith. It's sharing the gospel. You share the gospel, the good news that we just talked about. Someone believes the gospel and the natural next step, the way you seal that, the way you finalize that is you baptize them. That's why Jesus uses the verb baptize because it references the whole thing. So what we do next, after becoming a disciple ourselves, Jesus is challenging us to share our faith. That's where our work in discipleship begins. We've committed ourselves to him as his disciples. Now we go out and share our faith. That's where Matthew 28 really begins. Go out and share your faith with everyone from every nation, every people group. Go share your faith. Now we've talked about that one a lot. We've talked about evangelism. We know that Jesus is calling us to go share our faith, to to lead people to become believers in him. But it doesn't end there. That's not where the process of discipleship ends. There's a third step that Jesus wants us to take. Those who believe we are to train to obey him. That's the end of the command. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Once a person believes in Jesus, accepts Jesus as their savior, Jesus calls us to continue. We're not done yet. It's not time to throw ourselves a party yet. We're to continue training them and raising them up to be able to obey Jesus in every way. Now, when you look at what Jesus is saying, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, if you've, if you've read the gospels, you know Jesus commanded a lot of things. There's a lot of stuff there. This is the long part of the process. Sharing our faith, that's, that's relatively quick. That doesn't take a lot of time. Training someone to obey all that Jesus commanded, that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of work. This is where the process really becomes extended. In fact, I would say this takes really the rest of that person's life. It takes the rest of our lives to grow and become true followers, truly obeying Jesus. Now, if, if they're going to obey Jesus, they have to know what Jesus commanded. So the first part of this is teaching them Scripture, teaching them what Jesus commanded. But, but just passing on knowledge is not enough. That's not what Jesus has in mind, just classes where we teach people. Paul gives us the goal of this third part of discipleship. Paul's goal in ministry was not just to create people who knew Scripture or knew the words of Jesus. He says, we proclaim him, that is Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's what discipleship is getting at. 
Not just people who know what Jesus commanded, but who are complete in Christ. They're like Jesus in every way. So in this third part, we're training a person to be like Jesus in every way. We're giving them not just knowledge, but we're sharing our lives with them. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you've become very dear to us. In this process of making disciples, um, it's, it's really not about just hosting classes or teaching information. It's about doing life with another person. That's the model that Jesus practiced. He did life with these 12 men. He, he shared his life with them. He went through life with them. He invited them to experience life with him. Okay, so that's the process of discipleship. I think many of you are probably familiar with this. You become a disciple yourself. You share your faith. You train that new believer to follow Christ in every way. You train them holistically and intentionally to follow Jesus. I don't think this is the new information. I think we know how to make disciples, or at least we have an idea of it. Really, where I want to end this morning and where I really want to focus is I want to answer the question, what's holding us back? I surveyed my staff and I asked them, what percentage of us do you think are participating in discipleship. And they wrestled with that and they thought about that. And then I asked my staff, what is holding us back? Why are we as a body, why are more of us not involved in the process of making disciples of Jesus Christ? And they gave me a number of reasons and I want to share and I want to I hopefully debunk the top three reasons they gave for why they think we as believers may not be participating in this command to make disciples. That's where we'll end this morning. First reason that people give. It's that they don't feel worthy. They don't feel qualified. This whole idea of making disciples of Jesus, man, that sounds intimidating. That sounds serious. And, and we see our own sin better than anyone else. And we know our limitations and our weaknesses. And we don't feel qualified to make disciples. What do, what do we do with that? That's, that's uh, one of the most common reasons that I hear for why people don't participate in discipleship. Here's what I would say to that. Number one, remember, you are not making a disciple of you. You're making a disciple of Jesus. You are not the master. You are not the teacher. Jesus is. You're just a fellow disciple on the way. You're a fellow disciple who makes mistakes, who hopefully does some good things. You're just a fellow disciple who looks back over your shoulder at other disciples and helps them along the way. That's what Matthew 28 is about. It's not about being the master, the teacher. It's about helping others to follow the one master and teacher. When I realized that, that really helped me. That took a lot of the fear out of discipleship. I don't have to be the perfect person. I don't have to be the perfect master or teacher because Jesus already is. All I'm doing is helping a person to see Jesus clearer, to walk with him more faithfully. That's all discipleship is. It doesn't have to be this big, intimidating, scary thing. I think that the second reason that people feel intimidated by it is they feel like they have to provide everything in the process. They have to fully train this person to be complete in Christ. And it's helpful to remember that, that as we look at discipleship, it's a group project. don't know if you've ever thought about that. Discipleship is a group project. It's not, it's not any one of our responsibilities to totally train up a person to follow Christ. And that's good news because none of us can do it completely. We do it together as a community, as a group. I love 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Paul's saying, hey, guess what? I can't do it all. I'm the great apostle Paul and I can't do it all. I need others that I partner with in this process of discipleship. So I do some stuff, Apollos does some stuff, but God's the one who causes the growth. So discipleship doesn't have to be this scary thing because you don't have to do it all. 
God is the one who causes the growth as we work together. My, my challenge to you is to look at your life and ask the question, what is the unique contribution that I can make? What are the gifts that I have? What are the experiences that I've been through? How can I pass those on to other people? You, you may be in this room and you have walked through the Lord in, in a unique trial. Maybe you've walked with the Lord through infertility. Well, guess what? You can be the person here at the body of, of Grace Bible Church Southwood who helps others who are walking through infertility because you've been through it. That's your unique contribution. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've walked through illness. You've walked through cancer. Well, you can be the person who's here helping others to walk through cancer. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a real gift when it comes to sharing your faith with evangelism. Well, why don't you be the person who helps the rest of us to share our faith well? Discipleship is a group project where we should each be playing to our strengths. Imagine you're doing a group project at A&M. First thing you do is figure out what are each of you good at and let's do what we're good at. That's the easiest way to make this happen. Well, that's what we do. What are each of us good at? Let's do the things that we're good at and help others to do them too. So discipleship isn't some big scary thing where you have to do it all. You're not the master, you're not the teacher, you're not the end all be all. You work with the rest of us to help other disciples along the way and following Jesus. So it doesn't need to be this big scary intimidating thing. In the strength of God, God who causes the growth, you are adequate. Just focus on your strengths and your experiences that he's provided for you. Okay, so hopefully that, that's the first reason that people give. I hope that, that that's uh, been debunked to some extent. Second thing I'll hear is, well, I don't have anyone to disciple. I can't make disciples because I don't have any people to raise up. Well, um, let me say that's probably not true. Discipleship is not this thing where you pass out a flyer and someone checks the box. I want to be a disciple. Okay, you're my disciple. That's not how it is. Uh, discipleship is where you look around at the people who are already in your life and you simply help them along the road. Now, we're celebrating a particular group here in this room, mothers, this morning. Uh, Let me say, mothers, all of you have someone to disciple, don't you? Mothers and fathers, all of us already have, we don't need to go looking elsewhere for disciples. We already have them. They're our kids. Parenting is the primary discipleship relationship that happens in the context of a family. We're running low on time this morning, so I can't walk you through it, but it's neat to look particularly at the example of Timothy. Timothy is this amazingly mature, godly man who becomes pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul draws this guy in and trains him up, but it's interesting. uh, Paul didn't have to do a lot of discipleship in the life of Timothy. Why? Because by the time Paul meets him in the middle of the book of Acts, Timothy is already a remarkably mature believer because of the ministry of his mom and grandma. Paul calls them out. He says, your mom and grandma, they're the ones who passed on to you the faith. They're the ones who trained you in the sacred writings of scripture. They're the ones that trained you how to walk with the Lord. This amazing man, Paul had to do hardly anything. His mom and grandma had already done the heavy lifting in his life because discipleship happens best in the context of family. So parents, we who are here, we, we don't have this excuse. We definitely have people to disciple our own kids. That's the primary discipleship relationship we have. Third and final reason that people will give me why they don't participate in discipleship is that they're too busy. That's probably the one I hear most frequently. I'm too busy. I have so much going on. I don't have time to make disciples. Well, um, that's, a, that's an excuse that we, we all use. All of us use that phrase, those, those three words, I'm too busy. Uh, I, I want to remind us, maybe you haven't thought about this, but um, I'm too busy really isn't a legitimate excuse Um, All of us have the same amount of time in a day. We all have 24 hours. All have the same amount of time. We're not too busy for anything. The reason we don't do something is not that we're too busy for it. The reason we don't do something is because we don't let it trump other priorities. 
That's really what we're saying. I don't say that to convict you. I'm just saying that to, to be honest with one another. We're not too busy for discipleship. We simply have let other things trump discipleship. That's the reality. Whatever those things may be, they may be extremely important things, job, kids, uh, community service, whatever it might be, lots of important things, but we've let them trump discipleship. So we're, we're not too busy. The reason we don't participate in discipleship is that it hasn't taken a high enough priority in our lives. Now, l- let me address that, the real cause for why we don't participate in discipleship. Well, what I want to remind you, we've talked about this before, um, it's helpful to remember the only reason we're still here right now, the only reason that you're in these seats this morning is for the task of discipleship. Everything else that God has called you to do, you can do better in heaven. Have you thought about that? Worshiping God, you'll do that better in heaven. Following Jesus, you'll do that better in heaven because you won't have sin. You'll perfectly obey. Uh, Praying, you'll do that better in heaven. You can just talk to him face to face. Uh, Everything that God has called you to do, you'll do better in heaven except Matthew 28. You can't make disciples in heaven. Why? Because there's no one but disciples in heaven. (laughs) You're done when you get to heaven. You can only make disciples on earth. This is the only reason that God has left us here. If, If he wasn't calling us to make disciples, God would just take us home. Why leave us here? This is really a painful place to be. Only reason God has left you here is to make disciples. So when you look at your priority list in the course of your day, it's helpful for me to remember the only reason I'm still on this rock we call earth is to make disciples. Everything else in my life is second to that. Everything else in my life, I'll do better in heaven. The only reason I'm still here is discipleship. So if you've been using this excuse, I'm too busy, I want to challenge you as, you as you think about it this morning, as we pray, as you head home this morning on this Mother's Day, uh, first of all, be honest with yourself. You're not too busy, you're just doing other things. You've not let discipleship trump those other things. And as you think about that, realize there's only one reason that you're here. You probably should focus on that one thing. That should probably be the most important thing in your life if that's the only reason God has left you on this rock. Let's turn to the Lord and pray for help because it does take his help to participate in this process. Lord, thank you so much um, for the teaching that you've given us through your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is our one master, our one teacher. Thank you that none of us in this room need to step up and be the master or the teacher. We all look to Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the perfect example that he is to us. We thank you that he has given us the way, that he's taught us what he expects of us, that he's taught us how to walk with him. And uh, so we pray for every one of us in this room that first and foremost, Lord, that we would grow as disciples of Jesus, that we ourselves would walk with him in faith and in obedience, that we would commit our lives to him, that we would turn from sin, that we would continually grow to walk with him more and more faithfully. Lord, I pray that um, we would be a community of disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, And I pray, Lord, that as we walk with Jesus, that then every one of us would uh, step forward and participate in this command, this process that he's given us, Lord. We uh, acknowledge these are his his marching orders. This is his last command given to us before he ascended into heaven, the last command in the book of Matthew, Lord. We pray that every one of us would take it seriously that we would carve out time in our busy schedules for this most important priority. I pray that all of us would realize that we don't have to provide the strength, we don't have to be the end-all, be-all, that we just are fellow disciples helping other disciples in the strength of your spirit. We pray that you would give us eyes to see those in our own lives who you're calling us to pour into, to invest into, to disciple. I pray that all of us would be faithful with that. And we pray especially for the moms who are here, Lord. We pray that your strength would be upon them. We pray that you would anoint them with your spirit and give them power and strength to raise up disciples among their children. 
We pray that they would see what a privilege and a a solemn responsibility and opportunity motherhood is. Uh, We praise you that you've given them uh, perhaps the dominant, predominant opportunity in the lives of these children to raise them up to follow Jesus. We pray that they would feel that privilege and that they would feel how valued they are in your sight. We pray that for them you would give them strength this week to really care and love their kids and help their kids to walk with Jesus. Thank you so much for all that you've done, Lord. Thank you most of all for your son in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you, especially you moms.